Hi everyone, welcome to the B2B Sales Podcast. I'm Thibaut. And I'm Ara. Every week, we interview thought leaders, experts, and top performers in B2B sales. During 30 to 45 minutes, we will deep dive into topics like modern prospection, pipeline management tactics, or innovative sales tools to help you navigate the complex world of B2B sales. We're on a mission to change the way society sees sales. This profession is one of the most rewarding ever, yet many people are afraid to do sales or they choose this career by default. This podcast is brought to you by Sales Labs. If you want to know more about our sales training and coaching programs, go to www.saleslabs.io. It's www.saleslabs.io. So get ready for your dose of sales wisdom and enjoy the show. So hi everyone, welcome to this new episode of the B2B Sales Podcast. So today we're going to talk about how to scale small sales teams and how to be a role model for women in sales. And so I'd like to welcome Pat Duchesne, who's the VP of Sales at Postal. So welcome to the podcast, Pat. Hey, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, it's an early morning here in California, but as most days in California, it should be a beautiful one. So no complaints. That's good. Yeah, you have a nice background. You can see the window behind you. So looks like you have a nice garden. I do. So I'm, I'm in a nice, I would say I'm, I'm about 10 kilometers away from the beach. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of greenery. Okay, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> that's really nice. So Pat, can you maybe um, tell us more about yourself, who you are, um, to the to the audience? Yeah, uh, no problem. So um, so I grew up in California. Um, I actually grew up exactly where I'm located today. Mm-hmm. Um, I've somehow made it back to my hometown. Um, and I actually thought I wanted to go into agriculture um, growing up. So my, my family's in agriculture and I went to university to study mm-hmm. crop science and agriculture, um, really thinking that I wanted to be a farmer and I wanted to study the science of plants. Um, and it was in college that I realized that I also really enjoyed spending money and therefore needed Mm -hmm. to make a little bit more money than agriculture (laughs) was going to let me make. Um, so I, uh, I kind of pivoted my career at that point. I dabbled in wine sales. Mm -hmm. So I I know quite a bit about wine. I'm great at a dinner party. Um, and, uh, and then I actually eventually made my way to San Francisco and that's where I started to learn about technology um, and that is where I, I got my first kind of taste of tech sales. My first, my first job in San Francisco was actually selling hardware. So mm-hmm. I started by heart selling hardware, and then I, I eventually moved into software. Um, and then uh, my, my, my last job before, jo- before joining Postal was at a company called Rike, mm-hmm. uh, which is a project management software. And they moved me to Ireland, where I was for about, I want to say, five years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, can you maybe tell me a bit more about the agricultural background? I'm super curious, you know, because I'm also from, from kind of like uh, my, my grandparents, uh, like they used to, to kind of like grow, um, how you call it, wine plants or wine. I don't know how you call these things that produce grapes. wine. Grapes, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and I really, I really understand like the, the kind of roots we have there. I've also been like uh, biking in the um, Alexander Valley. And, and so 
I really, you know, oh. for, for me, it was like the smell was very surprising because it was very not like a U.S. smell. It was from south of France, like the smell I had there. And I was like, that's very surprising. Mm -hmm. So can you maybe tell me a bit more about that? I'd be curious. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So Alexander Valley is gorgeous. So I, um, so where I'm located in California, I'm like a, I'm about three hours south of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I'm maybe three and a half hours. Uh, and it's an area called San Luis Obispo. So it's kind of a, a funky area. I, I talk about it so often. I'm kind of worried all these people that I've told about <laughs> it in, in, in Europe um, are going to start flocking here as a new tourist destination. <laughs> but I think it's kind of an, a hidden gem in California because everyone goes to San Francisco. People love LA and Hollywood and, um, and people go to Napa for the wine. But San Luis Obispo has, um, is one of the, is the second or third largest wine region in California. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of wine here, um, but there's also, it's a very relaxed vibe and everybody, you know, there's a lot of like what I would call surfing cowboys. Mm -hmm. um, so we still have a really big, um, I would say cowboy culture where there's like a lot of um, cattle ranching that goes on. Mm -hmm. So my grandparents were cattle ranchers. And so they're about another 30 minutes South. They were, they, they've since passed, but we still have the ranch 30 minutes South of us. They raised cattle. My dad grew, when I was growing up, he was growing broccoli and cauliflower and carrots. Every vegetable that you mm -hmm. hate as a child, my dad grew it. Um, <laughs> okay. It was terrible <laughs> because uh, I, I grew up in a large family. So when we go out to eat, you know, the one time a week, that the rule was the child who was obviously the most poorly behaved had to eat all the vegetables left over oh <laughs> because we, we never left vegetables. Like you, he was like, if you, if you leave the vegetable, the restaurant stops buying. Now I don't really think that's the case, but that's what he told us. <laughs> and so the, the fear of broccoli is what kept us behaving. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was just kind of like, it was part of what I grew up. I mean, our, I, you know, my parents have a small little house um, in, in an area called Napomo of San Luis Obispo County but like there's a winery just to the north of it and there's a winery to the south of it. And then my parents have like my mom right now, she has a handful of chickens and goats. It's just kind of like, it's just the way of life. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I really like Californian wine. In general, I don't really like American wines, but the, for California, you, you guys are almost as good as the French wine from South of France, let's say. <laughs> Good. So, um, you know, so, so I'd love, I'd love to talk about your, your career at Reich. I think you, you stayed there for six years and you, as you said, you started in the U S and then went to Europe. Can you maybe tell mm -hmm. me a bit more about that and your journey there? Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to, um, Reich was a, was an incredible experience for me. And I have to say it was, it was a very uh, serendipitous meeting between, um, kind of me finding Reich and Reich finding me at that time. Um, so I had been selling hardware in San Francisco, um, and I actually moved to San Francisco selling hardware thinking that I was, I was jumping into tech and I put air quotes around it. For those of you who listen to the podcast, you can't see it, but I put air quotes because I didn't know what tech was. All my friends were moving to the Bay and they were all working at tech. Most of them were working in SAS. I learned later, but I had no idea coming from ag. So I was just like, Oh, I'll go sell stuff, you know, in San Francisco. So, um, Anyways, I'd, I'd sold hardware, and once I learned a lot about technology and which areas of technology I was interested in, um, I started interviewing for SaaS companies, and I could not get a job anywhere because I hadn't sold SaaS, 
-hmm. And I kept, you know, they kept going back to like, look, you have to have experience selling on a recurring model. You have to be, you know, you have to be comfortable with all these metrics. And I had sold million dollar deals in hardware, Mm -hmm. but obviously I'd never sold a subscription, even if that subscription is only, you know, a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. So I was struggling to find a job and it was this serendipitous, serendipitous time where Reich was looking to hire like one of their first sales reps, Mm -hmm. but they had no funding. So they were entirely bootstrapped, which in the Bay area is an incredibly risky place Mm -hmm. to go join because obviously it doesn't really scream paycheck security. Um, and I, it was just, it was really lucky. I really needed a company to take a chance on me. And they needed a sales rep to take a chance on them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I remember I, I was living in San Francisco at the time. And at the time, Rake was in San Jose, which they are actually now in San Jose again, which is kind of crazy. They finally came back to their roots. Yeah. Um, and I met the CEO. Uh, I, remember, I, I remember it was a it was a unique interview because the whole office was like the size of a large bathroom. It was so tiny. Like it was so small. And I remember it had no air conditioning and it was almost all windows. So I was sweating as I was in this interview. It was so uncomfortable. Um, but the team was really, really nice. And I remember thinking when I walked out that the CEO was one of the smartest people I'd ever met. Um, and I remember explaining to my boyfriend, now husband at the time, I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't feel like I should want this job because it really doesn't seem like, it, like I, I don't, I'm not confident I'm going to have a job in like six months but I really want to try it. And at the time we didn't have a mortgage or anything. And he was just like, well, just do it, you know, yeah. give it a try. Um, and I'm really glad that I did. So I, I started there. There were about four or five of us at that time in this tiny little office in San Jose. Uh, about six to seven months later was when our series A came in through Bain Capital Ventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I joined, there was like no technology besides their homegrown backend. So yeah. if I want to call people, I was just like, searching the back end for registrations. <laughs> um, after the series A, you know, we started to hire quite aggressively as you do. That's when we hired um, our first CRO and we got like a CMO and you, know, you start hiring people who, who've done it before, as opposed mm-hmm. to the five of us who were just like, this looks like it might work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I was there, I was in the States for about, for about two years. And then I moved to Dublin, Ireland. Um, I was, that whole experience was incredible. Kind of, they, they asked me at our sales kickoff in Mexico that year. They were like, you know, you'd mentioned that when you, as I did in my interview, they're like, and he remembered, you mentioned your interview. If we, we ever opened an office in Europe, you wanted to do it. And I was like, of course, um, I still do. And he's like, okay. And at the time they were debating Amsterdam or, or Dublin. So, all right, do you, um, so why don't you, when we're done with the SKO, go home, talk to your husband and um, decide what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh no, we're going to go. And they were like, no, well, you can go talk to your husband. And I was like, <laughs> trust me, we're going to go. And so I called my husband and he was like, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> nice. um, so it was an easy decision. I mean, uh, you, you know, he's, we ended up moving to Dublin um, and we were there for just under five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the growth there was incredible. I had the opportunity to launch offices in other countries as well. Um, by the time I left, you know, Reich outside of the U.S. had offices in, in Prague, in Kiev. Um, the development headquarters is in St. Petersburg, Russia. Then we had Melbourne, Australia, and Tokyo, um, Japan, which was all just really incredible to see that team grow. 
um, it was truly an example of kind of like the us, a company that grew with the adoption mm -hmm. curve. Yeah. Because when I was selling, it was very much, we were educating people yeah. about work management and it was still very foreign to some, like, why do I need that? It feels very micromanagey. And by the end, people got it. And it was one of yeah. those things where like, okay, I need a VoIP. I need a VoIP for my team. I need, I need a Slack or some sort of, you know, internal communication tool. I need an e email client and I need work management. Yeah. And so it was really cool to watch that evolve in the maturity of that market. Okay. That's super nice. That's really interesting. Why did you pick Dublin and not Amsterdam? Because Amsterdam um, is, I, I really prefer Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love Amsterdam, don't get me wrong. Um, I think it came down ultimately to the prevalence of talent. Yeah. The, the talent pool that we were looking to pull from was, was predominantly in Dublin. Mm -hmm. Not to say there's not incredible talent in Amsterdam. But when you look at all the incredibly large organizations that have decided on Dublin as their headquarters, that's really what you're doing is you're, you're looking to them to pull talent from across continental Europe. Yeah. And we felt there was more of a pull in Dublin if we were going to start hiring. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's super impressive. And it's fun when we look at your LinkedIn, cause you started in the West coast and you, you were managing the East coast and then you were director of international sales, I guess from Dublin and then, you know, like VP from Dublin. So can you maybe tell, tell us about the, um, like, um, you know, this change from uh, you were like an individual contributor at the beginning and then you mm -hmm. went to a director and then VP. Uh, I guess you were, you know, like hiring, managing people. You know, how, how did it feel changing like that? And, and how did you get to do that, by the, basically? Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Um, I once had, not too long ago, actually, I had a, I had a manager or I should say our CRO, right, who had said to me, you know, the best salespeople don't always make the best managers. And that's something I've definitely learned over time. And I think it's important for me to say that because some of the things that made me a great sales person or an individual contributor are the things that made me a horrible manager. And then I had to learn to work around. <laughs> um, an example would be, I'm incredibly impatient when it comes to my deals. Yeah. Um, and if you tell me you're going to do something by a certain time and you're my, you're my prospect, you better do it. Yeah. Um, and I'm very, in, I'm not, I'm not very forgiving. And that mentality does not work when you're managing people on your team who are learning a brand new skill yeah. or brand, brand new trade. And so there are, there are certain things I certainly had to adapt. Um, I think that in my, in my first few transitions, specifically in coming from, um, an individual contributor of the States to managing that East coast team, that transition, I learned a lot about giving up some of my responsibilities. Mm -hmm. It's really hard when you're going from individual contributor to manager to let your team do the, their jobs mm -hmm. because you've done it and clearly you've done it really well. And so sometimes you just feel it's faster to jump in and do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't because you're, you're just stunting the growth of the team. And so I learned that the hard way a few times, yeah. um, but ultimately learning to let go. And it was, it was kind of crazy to do that. And then when I, when we went to Dublin, it was like launching a company all over again. Yeah. So um, when we were hiring early days at Rake, you know, the, the persona that you hire for is very different than I'm sure they're hiring for today is, mm -hmm. you know, there are a few thousand, there are, you know, I think they're like 1,200 or 1,100 employees. When we were looking for our early hires, I would call them Swiss Army knives. Mm -hmm. So you wanted the sales reps that wanted more scope than just, here's a pipeline, go get it. Mm -hmm. 
um, you need people who are interested and invested in building the larger picture. But over time, you have to, as a, as a leadership team, you have to develop those Swiss Army knives into specialists. Mm-hmm. And not everybody wants to do that. And that's perfectly okay. But you just have to make sure that that's known that ev- like eventually we all have to be hyper-focused and specialized in one area of the business. Yeah. And so I felt like we were getting to that point at Rike where I was moving to the, managing the East Coast team. And then when I moved to Europe, it was like we had to do it all over again. And again, I was looking for Swiss army knives because it was like building a brand new business. Mm-hmm. And yes, we had some infrastructure obviously from the US, but as I'm sure you're aware, selling to Europe is not the same as selling to the US. And anyone who tells you that it is, is totally full of lies. Um, but that is not the case. You have, you have to adapt. And it's the yeah. same when you go to APAC. Um, and so again, I was sitting in Dublin looking for my Swiss army knives and, and some of those Swiss army knives came with really unique backgrounds. Um, and so then, you know, again, in, in a leadership position though, I was put in a position where we were a super small team and I had to do a lot of things again that I mm-hmm. hadn't done in a year or so. Cause I was kind of had to be an individual contributor yeah. to just get the business running. And then again, I had to learn to like, let my people do what they're good at. I had to help them kind of become specialists. Um, and I guess it was really a cycle that I had to keep relearning and reteaching. Mm-hmm. I like to think I got better at it as many times as I did it, but I'm sure I was just as crappy at it mm-hmm. every single time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, see, I, that's really something I can totally relate to. Uh, for me, that's why I'm actually also doing what I'm doing is, um, I was an individual contributor and then I became a manager and this impatient with uh-huh. deals, which is something that also uh, is very strong indicator of success in sales. If you are just like keep pushing to make sure the deals come in, if you do the same on people, they really hate it. And it's very close to micromanaging. So a deal actually, you have to micromanage it like a lot to get it through the line sometimes when you're mm-hmm. into this education phase where you have to, you know, and if you do that with people, they just naturally hate it. And for me, I know like I'm a terrible manager um, mm-hmm. I'm just like, I just like, I really suck at it. I hate it. And so uh, I've actually, I wanted to have a career in sales, but I'm a good teacher and coach. And so that's, that's really the, the thing I, I do. Like if people give me money, I'm very good at managing them. That's the thing is like, if I have to manage <laughs> them and pay them on top of it, it doesn't work. So, uh, so that's my thing. I, I prefer uh, hiring experts who take care of the job, paying them more, you know, I don't need to manage them. And um, that's, that's my idea. And also one thing you said about like the, um, uh, the Swiss army knife is uh, mm-hmm. super true for me. I was, a, I'm a Swiss army knife. I like launching new products, launching new things. And I found a business model that really helps me doing that. But mm-hmm. success comes from focus, you know, in sales. And so let's say you become like, uh, you know, you, you start like just doing SMB, then in market and uh, enterprise then you have to be excellent at one specific thing and have an army of people helping you. And you can't just like be the guy who's doing everything. And for me, I just love being the guy who's doing everything. And I hate like, uh, you know, I hate giving away some of the success to others. Like if something works, I want to feel hundred percent that it's my fault. Same if it fails. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's uh, it's something that is a, it's a transformation that I, I learned you know, something I learned and I, I was not really, uh, yeah, that's why I was not happy working from someone for someone else when the company got uh, bigger, basically. Bigger. Uh, yeah, I, I completely empathize with what you're saying. And I think actually you said you, you hit the nail on the head on something that's really important. You said you like to hire experts and you pay them that to, you know, yeah. to, to manage people. I think that's something that I learned really early because in sales naturally, and I hope no one listening to this gets offended, but I think if you've been in sales long enough, you'll be like, yeah, this is true every salesperson has a little bit of an ego. 
Like yeah. <laughs> it just kind of comes with sales. <laughs> yeah. And one of the one of the difficult things as you move into managing and leadership is that you become a builder. And so it's you have to hire people and you have to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you mm-hmm. and better at things than you are. Yeah. And sometimes that's really hard when you're just coming from an individual contributor position because all you care about as an IC is where you are in the leaderboard. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. am I number one? And if I'm yeah. not number one, I'm just losing. Exactly. And so you have to you have to learn to kind of drop your ego and just surround yourself with really smart people and know that that is your job. Your yeah. job is to find those smart people yeah. and put them on your team. Exactly. And that's, you know, I think it's, uh, I remember my first management class when I was uh, studying in, in Montreal, they were saying that um, everyone wants to be a manager because it's something as a society, we kind of give importance to management position. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but like people who are managing others are always like have a higher status, social status and everything. And so for me, I, I strongly encourage people to challenge this thinking is, you know, like you're going to be good if you're a builder, if you're able to kind of like let, you know, put your ego uh, down a bit and let others shine but for me i know it's like i'm more like a formula one driver where i want to shine i want to be on the on the leaderboard and i know it's my nature and mm-hmm. um and just like you know i'm, I'm happy i chose the path uh, where i you know i won't make people miserable working with me because i know i want to be at this leaderboard and uh, and and i don't think I'll, i actually want to do anything else so but often you know it's like the being at the leaderboard and at the top is also being a vp or something like that but yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's not really, you know, it's, uh, as you said, you have to be more, let's say, we could say altruistic, you could say that, you mm-hmm. know, like, altruistic. Think, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, then, then just yeah. like wanting the, all the, all the fame basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's really important. You know, I think that society does put a ton of pressure on, you must go into management and I, I, I've seen so many people burn out who've gone into management saying, thinking that that's just what they have to do. Mm-hmm. And and vice versa, I've seen people burn out at the top of the leaderboard. And so I think that since there is such a high burnout rate in sales, like you have to really spend time and think about what truly makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Are you more thrilled and elated when you're at the top of the leaderboard, you close the biggest deal of the quarter? Or are you more elated when the new hire that you got buddied up with closes their first deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and I think they're very, you know, they can be very similar feelings, but one is, one is definitely going to get you more fired up than the other and figuring mm-hmm. out what keeps you motivated and what prevents you from burnout is, is really important. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so now it seems like you're, so you have a strong experience building sales teams. Um, mm-hmm. I think, and, and you know, like taking them from small to big, um, from what I understand, that's more or less what you're doing right now. So can you maybe tell me a bit about the uh, typical mistakes people do whenever they are at this very first stage when they have to build, you know, have their first sales hires? What are the typical mm-hmm. mistakes you, you see? Yeah, I think so. We are, so we already talked about Swiss Army Knife. We know that we need a little element of Swiss Army Knife in your first few hires. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say is that if you haven't built a small team, like if you're coming, let's say you did very well at a mid-sized company and you managed a team of like 15, 20, and then you're, you've got an opportunity to jump to a VP role at a startup. That's a pretty normal transition that people mm-hmm. do. Yeah. When you're, a, you know, let's say manager level, director level at a mid-sized company with 15, 20 people, what you're looking for is you're looking for the best sales reps, Mm -hmm. like the best sales reps and the best sales reps can sometimes be what I would call mercenaries Mm -hmm. in companies. And those mercenaries are not necessarily loyal to brands. They're loyal to a paycheck. Yeah. And they are very, very keen 
on, you know, they're very, very keen on making sure they have predictable revenue in their bank account. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're a startup, you can't always guarantee predictable revenue mm -hmm. in your bank account because you're figuring out you're going to market strategy. You're trying to find your product market fit. And so you got to look for what I call missionaries. Mm -hmm. These are people who are incredibly good salespeople, but they're inherently inquisitive. They like to figure out puzzles mm -hmm. and they, uh, and they are fully accepting of the, of the situation of the company. And they want to be a part of finding those, those answers to those questions. Yeah. And along the way, obviously knowing that there's a tremendous upside if they're part of the very small team that helps mm -hmm. figure it out. So I, I think I, I call it missionary versus mercenary. Mm -hmm. And I, sometimes if I, you know, if I can't ask, if I can't figure out if somebody is one or the other, I'll sometimes just ask them in an interview. I'm like, look, I have two categories of salespeople. Which one would you categorize? Would you put yourself in? And I think there's nothing wrong with mercenary. Mm -hmm. Like mercenaries make great money and they're great for organizations. I just don't think they're right for what I call the landing team of a yeah. startup. Yeah. You need a ton of loyalty and commitment to figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And often it's um, something I see very often is uh, people see. Let, let's say also that's for for uh, leaders and management. That's often the case when you build a sales team. You'll, you know, people will take the, the wrong experience. They say, oh, he was at Salesforce or she was at Salesforce and she grew the team from uh, 10 million, you know, to 100 million. That's great. But she started at 10 million. There's a huge step from going so from zero to one and then one to 10. That's like, you mm -hmm. know, zero to one is one person. One to 10 is another person. And 10 to 100 is another person. And then 100 to 1 billion is another. So for me, it's always there's these four type of profiles you have to look for and think about your mm -hmm. revenue. And then the threshold can change. But like, let's say from 100 million to 1 billion, you have to be good at dashboards and politics, basically. And uh, if you're good at dashboard and politics from zero to one, you won't go anywhere. So it's, um, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's very important to, uh, to do that. And in terms of, uh, of promotion and, and whenever, let's say, things take off, uh, that's also something I've, I've experienced myself when I started and things took off. And then mm -hmm. you start seeing like the fight for, for the best seats and everything. So what are, let's say, your, your advice on how to promote and, and who to promote, basically? Oh, it does. It definitely gets challenging as you start to grow, obviously, because uh, there's a few things at play here. So the company is starting to grow. So everybody is just inherently busy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really easy while you may have been really great at prioritizing when you're figuring it out, you become terrible at it overnight. Mm -hmm. And so to so the best of your abilities, you're really to harness that is really, really important. Um, in regards to promoting, I think that talk about it early and talk about it often but talk about it realistically. So mm -hmm. whatever I, you know, I'm in a small team, whether it was launching a, you know, a small team in Reich or whether it was or right now building this team here at Postal. Um, I talk about it in the sense that, look, I want to promote everybody who wants to be promoted and who is, who has put in the work, the effort, and will continue to, to like produce the results mm -hmm. that we need. But it also has to align with when the company needs it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, if I have, you know, five account executives who all want to be managers and yet I have no team to manage, well, and I have no team to ma for them to manage. Mm -hmm. um, and so we talk about it very much like there's, there's, there's many things that have to align. You know, your results have to show for it. Uh, your capability to do the job has to show. And then the business needs to need it. And mm -hmm. then I'll fully support it. But I, I would say you've got to give a ton of time and energy to these first few hires because yeah. the sacrifices that they make to join a company in this time of ambiguity is tremendous. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them come in knowing that they're probably not going to get a, a really great bonus check for the first, you know, six months, mm -hmm. but they're doing it because they know the upside is really great. And mm -hmm. I'll say, 
if you're listening to this podcast thinking, oh, I don't really know if I want to take the risk of joining a startup, you will, there, if, you, if you join the startup world, you're definitely going to hit a few duds. Mm-hmm. That's just going to happen. Yeah. But when you, when you do hit a home run, you can see what would take someone in a large company you know, 20 years to accomplish, you can accomplish in five. Yeah. Because you learn at such a fast pace. And if you really put that time, energy, and effort in, and you also ask for what you want, like make it very well known. And in my story about Rake, I said in my interview, I wanted to launch Europe. Mm-hmm. And that came back up a year and a half later and they let me do it. And I think that, you know, br- you know brand loyalty is really important and, and people want to, to give back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had a manager once tell me, you know, do the job that you want. And I think that while in large companies, that doesn't really work in a startup. It does. If you just take on additional responsibility because you see that it's needed, like I, someone needs to own that and you just start owning it and you don't ask for anything in return. Eventually over time, the company will turn a corner in its growth and be like, Oh shoot, we need someone to, you know, be the director of sales of sales ops. Oh, well, I guess so-and-so has been, you know, doing all this. Yeah, they should be the director of sales ops. And it's kind of one of those changes that happens overnight. And all of a sudden yeah. you've got a massive promotion on your plate, but it's yeah. because you, you know, you saw a need for the business and you did it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, um, as you said, you know, it's, it's, you, you can choose stability and, uh, and then, you know, it's going to take you 20 years to go from one point to the other. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's going to be great learning. But for me, I, I'm like my early experience uh, working in, in a fast growth company really helped me. I learned tons of things and also, it kind of like uh, reinforced my my beliefs that I was able to do like to do these kind of things. You know, I never mm-hmm. thought I would be able to kind of grow that amount of, of you know, the, of, to grow to that revenue and all these things, you know, was like, that's, you know, I, I, I never thought I could do it. I've done it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it gives you so much confidence for the rest of your, of your career. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's always great to take this risk early on. And uh, you have you have quite some time, you know. It's that's the thing is people are super rushed, but you can fail a few times and then you'll find the right one, and uh, and that's gonna help. And it's better to do it really early because then you know uh, if you do you know you, you you naturally take less risk as you have the family mortgages and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think it's always a sort of a great thing to do uh, early on, basically. Yeah. yeah, and I think you know I know plenty of people who they they spend their entire career bouncing from like startup to startup to startup, and a lot of people say you know oh, you got to get that one win, but I think the reality is is like you you probably will have a small handful of wins, but mm-hmm. you're gonna have twice as many losses. And you got if you're gonna join the startup world, you got to be super comfortable with knowing like yeah I'm gonna hit a few duds. I'm gonna I'm gonna take what I learned, yeah. and then I'm gonna take what I learned from the successes, and I'm gonna combine those to then pick my next company. Exactly. But you just gotta be like throw the ego out the door when it comes to duds and in, in, in the startup world, like it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, um, so also we, we, I want to talk a bit about, uh, women in sales. And so, um, so what are, let's say the, the challenges you faced in, in your career, uh, as a woman, like working in sales in, uh, you know, in this environment. You know, I've been really lucky to have incredible mentors. Um, now I'll be honest, all of my salesmen, mentors have been male. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't have a, I don't, I don't have like a, someone that I, I would say I call on quite frequently. That's a, that's a female in tech sales, mm-hmm. but I've had some incredible male mentors who've been real great allies to me. Um, I think the two things that I would say were, were a bit challenging is one, I just didn't see people doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of hard to figure out how to do it when you don't see anybody that looks yeah. or acts like you. Yeah. Um, I'm also, you know, I'm a, I, I don't have a filter. 
Um, so I, I tend to say very much what I believe, which um, doesn't always work to my, my best benefit. I've gotten a little bit better at controlling it. Um, but, that also, but that also wasn't something I, I certainly wasn't something I saw the females in, in companies doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's usually the, you know, I shouldn't say the dudes, the guys that would just kind of say the off the cuff and, I'm, and you know, I, there also weren't very many females in the office. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe they would if they were there. Um, so it was tough not seeing anybody that was like me. Um, and I think the second thing that was tough was what I would call um, uh, this, like, this comparison or similarity, I think it's called um, bureaucracy bias, mm-hmm. that I would also, that, that the, com- the companies I think tend to struggle with, and, and I also tend to str- struggle with, which is, you know, when I would go up for promotions, I, I know that many times the, the challenge that someone who's predominantly male is put in is they are, you, you naturally search for someone who's like you. Mm-hmm. That's what a bureaucracy yeah. virus is. It's like, okay, I, I, you know, I know I can do it. So I want someone who's like me mm-hmm. and naturally I'm not going to fit that mold already. Yeah. I already, you know, I've got one thing against me and I often had the issue where I would look at what everyone else was, who everyone else, you know, that was leading. And I would say like, I can't be that because for whatever reason that I can or cannot define, like I'm just not that person. Mm-hmm. But I, I think learning to support myself and saying, well, there's, there's millions of ways to do sales. There's, and there's no one set personality that's successful at sales. You know, mm-hmm. it, you, you, we sell to everybody. Everybody is a buyer and every, yeah. and it, and that means that everybody can be a seller because there are so many personalities in this world and so many demographics. So I first had to learn that there's no one right way to do this. Mm-hmm. And once I had the confidence, you know, I was, I was able to a little bit more quickly challenge some of those, you know, and they're totally unconscious biases. It's not like anybody was ever looking at me like, oh, you're not a dude or you're not, it's, it's more so you can see the leniences and the, uh, the tendencies to really lean towards somebody yeah. who, and you gotta, it's, it's something that I, you know, I, I speak a lot on um, because I'm very passionate about unconscious biases, primarily because everybody has them myself mm-hmm. included and it's just the more you talk about them the easier they are to identify but i think that's one of the things that many companies especially small mm-hmm. ones struggle with because you have a tiny team and so when you're building a tiny team it's really easy to wake up one day and realize you've surrounded yourself with you know four five ten fifteen people who are just like you yeah and immediately when you realize that your ability to innovate shrinks Exactly. Because yeah. you just have one mindset, one, one, you know, one way of thinking. So keep that top of mind. Um, it helps you even when scaling big teams. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. And, uh, and, um, for me, you know, I'm French, so we have like, uh, uh culturally things are very different from in the U the U S I'm also Swiss. So a lot of mixes I've been living in Switzerland, France, Canada, uh, Germany, my fiance is from Mexico, uh, so like I got all of these, but you know, these all unconscious, over. yeah, it's I just like, uh, for me, it's normal, like being surrounded by people who speak three, four languages. I'm like, mm-hmm. fine. So, uh, but the thing is the unconscious bias is something we all have. If I tell you, I talk with this CTO, who do you see? Oh, I see a 60 year old white man. Yeah, that's the thing. So whenever you say CTO, whatever thing, you know, people mm-hmm. like immediately think about some kind of person and very often mm-hmm. it's a white male, basically. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so that's something I've, I've recently discovered. Like I saw a post on LinkedIn and I was like, oh, that's actually really interesting. I didn't think, didn't think I have, I had like unconscious bias, but I obviously do. 
And so it's super important that what you said is about visibility. And um, for me, my fiance is in sales and she, she once she did like um, a kind of like a cold calling competition in front of 150 people and she won it. Oh. And uh, it was quite, quite cool actually. And what was nice, I was in the crowd and, uh, and uh, the woman around me were like, wow, she did it. I can do that. You know, you could feel they were like really inspired. And they were, everyone was talking. And then I was like, that's really, you know, that's why it's so important to have this visibility because then like all the women who were in the room were like, oh, I can do it too. And, uh, exactly. and, and so, and that's the thing often is just like, you don't have this role model. And so I think that's, that's really one, one super important thing is to make sure there's visibility. Um, otherwise, you know, it's just like, it's self-perpetuating actually. That's exactly right. I think that if, if you're listening to this and you're a woman in, in tech or a woman in sales, um, I, I feel like I have a job, like part of my job, it's never going to be a job description, but part of it is that like, I have to be in front of people. Mm -hmm. I have to make sure that people know that it can be done because it, and because I didn't have it. So someone else is going to have it because I'm here. And I think that that's really important for all of us because otherwise you're, you're, you're dead, right? Like we're just going to perpetuate the problem and it's going to be a problem for the next decade if Mm -hmm. we don't put a stop to it today. And so sometimes it means we have to be a little bit more vocal, but it's because there's so few of us, we have to be a little bit more vocal to make sure that the, you know, the noise gets a little bit further, but yeah, visibility is incredibly important. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so if there was one uh, tip you would give to your younger self, what would it be? Hmm. Can I give two? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I would say two because I think I struggle with two, two things. So the the first would be, um, be more forgiving of yourself. I, I, I still struggle with this. I mean, I don't think any of us ever get over everything, Um, but like, I was terribly hard on myself. My, my first few years in sales, every little mistake required like a full breakdown of what I did wrong. I would beat myself up and it would, it would screw me up for like two days, Mm -hmm. two days in sales of of, like prospecting cold calling is huge. You know, they can pack like a week and a half of pipeline. (laughs) And so like be more forgiving, accept failures as part of the process. I think that would be, that would be really, really important. Um, and the second piece would be put yourself out there, put yourself out there and ask for help a little bit, a little bit more often. Um, I think that it took me, it honestly took me until about a year in Dublin until I really started to branch out and ask people Mm -hmm. that I kind of knew, or maybe knew through someone else who I knew were really incredible at their jobs or really, really, um, you know, experts in certain fields mm-hmm. for their help. And I would, I mean, I would take my the skills that I had in cold, cold outbound sales and I would apply it to my personal development. Yeah. And I wish I would have done that earlier in my career. Yeah. Um, and it, it ended up being, you know, helping me out tremendously. And I, I kind of look back, I'm like, God, if only I had that when I was trying to figure out how to get a job in, in SAS, maybe I would have, you know, landed a job quicker, but then, you know, I would have missed out on a rake. So, yeah. um, you know, hindsight's always 2020 and, and it all worked out, but I, you know, I wish I would ask for help outside of my little tiny bubble yeah. earlier. Yeah. Outbound is really something where if you know how to do outbound and you, you can apply it to so many things in life. And for mm-hmm. me, that's how like, uh, anytime you know i'm I'm interested in something i just like apply outbound to it so once i wanted to become a dj in berlin and uh, it's a very uh, different crowd and people are not really motivated by money or whatever but outbound really Mm -hmm. works also you know they were like no one is doing it because they wasn't like oh i'm an artist so i don't have to market myself and then i was like i'm just gonna try and 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 get you know just like find a gig and just like do it and 
that works really well. So it's uh, it works really well for so many things. If you're good at, if you know how to outbound, you can apply mm -hmm. it to everything in life, and it's it's very useful. So how long have you been in Berlin? Now it's been five years. Five years, and yeah. do you think that's where you guys will stay, or? I don't know. We'll, we'll see. You know, I just feel like um, for me, I prefer life where I, I don't really need to stay somewhere. I mean, I have a base, but I live pretty much where I want to live. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll see how I can do that. But it's de definitely easier. I mean, not for now, but in the next few years, it's going to be a lot easier to do because now we can all do remote. And uh, yeah. yeah, I just don't need to be present anywhere. I just, I just can work from more or less the same time zone and it's good for me. So we'll see. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Berlin's great. I love yeah. Berlin. It's a really cool place. Yeah, exactly. And so, so now I think we, we're closing to, you know, nearing the, the end. So is there anything you want to maybe promote, talk about, um, you know, like what do you want to pitch basically? <laughs> what do I want to pitch? Well, obviously I want to pitch Postal. Um, so I, I joined Postal in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. And Postal is a marketing and sales engagement platform that integrates offline engagements into the online engagements that you're mm -hmm. probably used to, such as email, phone call, digital advertisements, LinkedIn messages, all those things. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we're funded by Mayfield Ventures. And what we're aiming to do is if you think about what the likes of Outreach and Sales Loft did for automating sales engagement, mm -hmm. we want to bring automated personalized gifting and direct mailing to B2B. B2C has nailed these things. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, B2B, which is not always the case, B2B tends to be, uh, you know, the forefront of innovation and the forefront of kind of like best in class. Yeah. And we have totally failed on this front. And so we're working with our partners in, in Outreach and Sales Loft and HubSpot and Salesforce to basically take all these engagements that we send and, you know, whether it's, you know, I want to send you a personalized thank you for having me on the podcast mm -hmm. or if I'm outbounding, you know, to a CTO and I want to send them something to get their attention. You know, how do we bring that into our central source of record for our, you know, our CRM or our marketing, our marketing platform? And how do we track that? So when we look at prospects or customers, mm -hmm. we can see the entire path, you know, that we've taken in order to, to you know, earn their partnership and earn yeah. their trust. So that's what we're that's what we're aiming to do here at Postal. Um, we launched this year, so it's been it's been a really incredible journey with everybody going remote and working from home yeah. and emails. I mean, if anybody's read HubSpot's put out some really incredible reports, emails are through the roof, cold calls are down yet response rates and engagement is also down because yeah. there's just more emails. Nobody, yeah. you know, everyone's at home so they can read them, but they're not necessarily responding. Some yeah. people have budget cuts. And so we're seeing a, a tremendous amount of people starting to invest in really nurturing relationships mm -hmm. because there are there aren't that many and yeah. also spending a lot more time on their customers because you know they don't want to lose you know you don't want to lose those and, and you have an opportunity now at a bit of a pause almost in the in the economic environment mm -hmm. to focus on the people that have been with you for so long yeah. and so we're working with a lot of companies to just drive that engagement and, sh and you know give back with a lot of brand loyalty yeah okay okay that that's really great and it's a definitely a hot uh, a hot area right now for IBM and um, and prospecting is uh, yeah being creative is super important and so I think it's uh, it's always great mm -hmm. to have a, a kind of platform like that. So it's postal.io, right? Yep, postal.io. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. I'll put I'll put the link in the uh, uh, in the episode notes. And so if people want to get in touch with you, have questions, everything, where can they get in touch? 
Yeah, they can. They can. Uh, well, they can just always LinkedIn message me. I'm pretty mm -hmm. good about responding, um, especially if you give me a really good, um, if it's a really good outbound uh, outreach, I, you, I usually respond and I'll give you 15 okay. minutes. So give me a good cold email um, or a LinkedIn message. And then you can always email me at patricia at postal.io. Okay. Okay, good. So I'll include the, the link in the description. Just basically mentioned that's the easiest thing is you're on a podcast. That's the best way to kind of get in touch with someone on a podcast is to mention something they said during that. So find something that you liked and just like send it to Pat and I'm sure you'll answer because that's a, that's a good trigger whenever you're on a podcast. So that's, yeah, yeah I think that's a, that's a good thing. Good. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. That was uh, super nice, super insightful. And um, yeah, wish you a great day. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Good way to start my day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice to have a conversation. All right, Thanks have a good lot. one.